Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and I love comebacks. As the saying goes, the comeback is always stronger than the setback. It's the theme of this week's podcast with Jordan Harbinger. Jordan had spent years building up a podcast and company called The Art of Charm. The podcast started out when he and his buddies were young, and they came up with strategies on how to pick up girls. Over time, the pickup lines got thrown out the window, and a business that taught techniques on using nonverbal communication to attract and influence others grew out of the podcast and prospered. The podcast got millions of followers. Time passed. Jordan got married to the lovely Jen and continued to evolve. He veered the podcast toward the patterns of successful people. You might hear him interviewing General Stanley McChrystal or Shaquille O'Neal. That attracted a lot more people. But his partners didn't always want to move in the same direction with him. That said, things were going good. Over 11 years, the Artichon podcast reached an audience of more than 3 million listens a month. And the business at its core of improving lives through making better connections prospered. But over time, the fissure between Jordan and his partners widened. You'll hear why. And then you'll hear about when things broke. The partners retained the Art of Charm brand. And Jordan, the voice of the podcast, was out on his own and after 11 years, forced to start from scratch. When people reached out for his voice on the Art of Charm, they couldn't find it. And there were nights when it was hard for Jordan to sleep. But that's why you're here, to find out about Jordan's comeback. The full story plays out in this conversation, and it's filled with lessons for anyone who's considering getting into a partnership, a business marriage, or any kind of marriage, even joining a band. Things often don't work out for reasons that just aren't apparent at the beginning or because the parties avoid them once they're apparent. There's a lot to be learned here, plenty of cautionary advice, but ultimately this episode is about the triumph of human connection because now the world has the Jordan Arbinger Show and Jordan is bigger than ever. Before we get to my conversation with Jordan, I'd like to touch on an unrelated point about connection. I've been alerted that some of my emails are winding up in spam folders. People write back to let me know when they stumble on them weeks or months after I send them. I have no idea of the algorithms that do this, but I'm told the best way to deal with it is to ask you to send me an email through calfussman.com Perhaps in that email, you could recommend a guest you'd like to hear on Big Questions or send a photo of where you listen to Big Questions. You know how happy that makes me. Once I email you back and I try to respond to everyone, we'll have a reliable pathway to connect. And now for a story that gets to the power of connection and lessons about partnership, we go straight to Jordan Harbinger. All right, brother. All right. I am happy to be sitting in front of a Zoom recorder with my microphones all hooked up because I can remember 
talking to you before I did my first podcast about which mics to use yeah. and how to make it run smoothly. And you were so kind to me. Well, patient, maybe. Kind <laughs> is easy. Patience, <laughs> patience is the hard part for me. No, you were very kind. And it makes me happy to be sitting in front of the mic knowing that I assembled it in a finger snap. That's right. And I feel completely at home here. That's great. Because I remember when we first talked, you were like, I don't understand all this stuff. There's all these complicated cables and everything. I wasn't even here when you assembled this. I went and made tea. I came back and it was all ready. If I can do it, anybody can start a podcast. That's right. That's right. It's all democratized, as they call it. There you go. So where I really would like to go with this is to see the entire ascent of your business and podcast career, because it's almost like a movie. Yeah, at this like, point. like a possibly a movie that needs some exciting fictional parts written into it. <laughs> okay, let's just take it back to the beginning. And uh, I know you went to school at the University of Michigan. You're wearing a Detroit Tigers hat. That's right. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Troy, Michigan, which is kind of a boring suburb of a town that was going downhill even, I think, in the 90s. But it wasn't like, oh, we're so poor, there's an opiate problem. It wasn't like that. I mean, there's a lot of towns like that now. This was more like, hey, I'm going to work in the auto industry. Eh, maybe you shouldn't do that. Well, why not? Well, if you become an executive, maybe it's fine. But if you're going to work on the assembly line... And so there was kind of like this white collar, white collar upswing, I, I could say, in my area. And a lot of my friends' parents were auto executives. So it was really an auto industry town, as you would expect Detroit to be. But even the suburbs were, if your dad didn't work for Ford or GM, they were for Delphi or some other electronics manufacturer. And then Daimler Chrysler, which was then Daimler Benz, moved right into Troy. And so it was like everybody worked for the auto industry. And I know people say, oh, yeah, we're a coal mining town. Everyone works at the coal mine. This is Detroit, Metro Detroit. You can't find anybody who didn't work for or service the auto industry in some way. So when the economic decline or when the, the company started leaving, everybody felt it. It wasn't just sort of that bottom end. So I got a clear view of what happens in recessions and I remember seeing that sort of firsthand. Even in the 90s, you started to get a whiff of, hey, this isn't going to last forever. And so where does that take you? Where do you want, what do you want to do with your life? So my parents, my dad and my mom, were both the first person to go to college in their family. And actually, I think my mom's dad went to college, but he was, he was certainly the first. She was the first among her siblings and generation, and my dad was the first, period. So they were like, you have to go to college. And I thought, okay. So that was a foregone conclusion, even from first grade, kindergarten, whatever, when you start knowing what college even is. But then when I graduated from college, I wanted to get a job. And colleges don't train you how to get jobs. They just teach you skull shapes of prehumans and <laughs> calculus or whatever. So I went to go get jobs. I had no idea what to do. And I walked into Best Buy, which is an electronics retailer, essentially, and a friend of mine worked there and he's like, you can get a job here. So I applied for a job. And when I was interviewing there, they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I can build computers. I can repair computers. I can install software. I can get rid of viruses. And they're like, that's fine. You have to work in music for two years. You got to sell CDs. So I thought, wait a minute, I just got a four-year degree. I speak 
at that time, I think three languages. What languages were you speaking? English, Spanish, German. Oh, and then I had learned, uh, right after that, I learned Serbian, but it was English, Spanish, and German at that time. And they're like, yeah, that's fine, but you still have to sell CDs. So I'm looking at like this four-year expensive college education, and I'm standing next to a life-size cutout of Britney Spears, and I'm thinking, this is BS. I'm sharing shifts with a 16-year-old who's a freshman in high school or a sophomore. What am I doing here? This can't be how this begins. So I got a cold shower getting right out of college. I graduated, I graduated from the University of Michigan. It wasn't like I didn't have good grades or anything. They were just, I had no idea how to get a job. So rather than do that and sort of try to pay my dues doing that, I knew that there had to be a different way. But the formula, the recipe was go to college and get an education. That'll give you an edge. Well, since that amount of education didn't give me an edge, at least so it didn't look like, I decided to keep going to school. So I went to law school thinking, well, if undergrad didn't do it, law school will certainly do it. But there was no thought, do you want to be an attorney? It was just get so more just, education. You're going to leave Brittany, head to law school. Yeah, pretty much. It was like, it, it was basically like, look how useless you are with your four-year degree. What you need is another three-year degree at a really tough, in a tough program. So I got a full scholarship to a, a school in Michigan, and then I I got a, a no, no scholarship whatsoever to the University of Michigan. And my dad said, go, go to the place. It's going to be free. And I thought, that's fine. So I, I went and I thought about accepting that. And this was a smaller school. And then the scholarship was from Domino's Pizza, believe it or not. And so I came back and I was like, yeah, I got a full ride from uh, this guy who runs Domino's Pizza. And I forget exactly uh, the guy's name. He's a well-known Detroiter. And my dad goes, you're going to be the pizza lawyer. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not. So I went to the University of Michigan Law School instead. I had no scholarship at all, but I didn't want to be the pizza lawyer for the rest of my life. So my dad- <laughs> This, I had no idea. Okay, go with, ahead. With one comment, my dad ended up, well, I guess costing us both like 150 grand because I had a free ride and then I had a really expensive school to go to and I went to the expensive one. But truthfully, it, going which school you go to for law really, really matters. So it turned out to be kind of a good choice because I got a job on Wall Street my first year out of school, not even before I even graduated, I got a job on Wall Street making at that time, I think 160 grand a year, which is more than both of my parents put together made at the peak of their careers. So they were pretty happy about it. And I was happy until I found out what being a lawyer on Wall Street was really like. What's that like? It's a lot of checking for commas and documents that are 800 pages long because you're basically useless the first year or two. And then they have you doing these pretty menial tasks. There's some legal research involved, but it's almost like fancy Googling. You're on this LexisNexis database and you're looking, hey, find case law that talks about whether oil tankers or liquid natural gas tankers that are in international waters still need insurance or something like that, right? And so you're looking for that, you're looking for that, you're looking for that, and you either find nothing or you find some instance in which some company got sued because of ship had a problem in international waters and they didn't have insurance and the courts found, Hey, well, we have no jurisdiction over this. And so then you essentially tell your client, Hey, good news. You only need insurance when you're going near another country, unless you want your ship to be insured. So you realize not only are you kind of not helping anyone really, you're helping a corporation save money, possibly at the expense of the environment. You're not really doing much of anything because that was an exciting assignment, which is why I remember it. Most of the assignments were, can you proofread this 
document. And this is literally an 800-page document about liquid natural gas tankers and oil refineries or something. And I don't know anything about the contents. So I'm just saying, hey, this says that there's a footnote and there's no footnote. Hey, this has different font. Hey, this one's missing a comma and a period. Hey, this one has a blank page and this sentence doesn't finish. So you're really, you're literally just proofreading this document. And I highly suspect that nobody ever read the final document because they don't care. These are businesses trying to make money. There's not somebody who's like, oh, let me house this thing on the weekend. It wasn't informative. It was just some sort of formality. And I realized that we as attorneys were creating more formalities to kind of justify our existence. And it became a pretty dismal way, like a meaningless way to make money. And it just had no, this is the first time I'd ever thought about purpose or any kind of personal mission or adding value in a real way. Because at first you're, you're like, I need a paycheck. I got $150,000 in law school debt and I want to make money for the first time in my life. But after a while you go, what's the point? And I think a lot of people in those jobs are asking what's the point even 10 years later. So I was kind of lucky that the economy took a nosedive and they essentially, that my firm laid off something like 60 people, including the whole first year class, which I was a part of, or second year class, which I was a part of. And then that law firm later folded entirely. It's 160 years old and it later went completely under because they were over leveraged on things like mortgage backed securities and derivatives. Whoa. So you learn at an early age that when things go down, good things can happen. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's tough to say because it sounds so selfish, but the economic downturn of 2008, I guess it was, was the best thing in many ways that ever happened to me because what it did was it forced me to go look for another law job. Because my first law job was, hey, you graduated from Michigan? Great. You're, you're hired. Let's fly you out to New York unless you're a total moron and you can't impress anybody who's talking to you for even three minutes at a time, which is what job interviews were, then you're hired and we'll deal with any of your issues later. So that's what Wall Street was full of, guys who got hired because they needed warm bodies to put on projects so that they could build clients. And that's really what it was. When I was looking for a job in 2008, it was like, well, why didn't you come and work for us when we offered you a job two years ago? And the answer is, I don't know, I got a better offer elsewhere or I wasn't interested. So finding a job was pretty tough, but I had already started my podcast because I enjoyed talking into a microphone. Well, and that, I that's teaching. where I was getting with that. That yeah. was a question that was coming. Was there a, a time that you knew you can talk? Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, I probably should have figured it out because getting me to shut up was tricky. And <laughs> any, any of my parents will, will tell you that and my family members will tell you that. But I started the show, which is now the Jordan Harbinger shows, an older one before that, but I started well, the show. Just back it, back it up. Sure, so sure. You, you started a podcast, uh, and was this alone or was this with a friend? So I started a podcast. Well, I, let me dive in even before that. Right. When I first got hired during an associate year, which is like a break between... I was a summer associate. It's essentially, you're, it's a, this is a summer job where a law firm wines and dines you and tries to convince you that being a lawyer is great fun and you should work there. So I got hired and I realized everybody else had these mentors, and I put that in air quotes, where some attorney says, 
hey, you're mentoring Jordan for the summer. And then that junior level attorney and then that partner, they take you to see Blue Man Group, they take you to McCormick and Schmick and they take you to Morton Steakhouse and you're having all this fun around Manhattan and you're eating and drinking Manhattan or London or whatever. I worked in both cities. And my mentor was never around. And so HR was always like, hey, what did you do with your mentor this last week? Nothing. Shoot. Okay. And that happened over and over and over because all the other guys and gals, all the other associates were doing everything, like three times a week, they were going out and doing fun stuff with their mentor. And finally, they made my mentor go out with me. And he's like, what's up? You can ask me anything you want. And he only took me to like Starbucks in the basement of this office building. And <laughs> oh, I really man. got, I really got the shaft, you know? <laughs> and I said, how come you're never in the office? Because I thought I need to know how to not be in the office. Here's why. I was convinced that everybody else was smarter than me. Everybody else was going to be able to outwork me because when I was in high school, I coasted through school. When I was in college, I outworked everyone because even though people were smart or smarter than me, they were all drinking and hanging out all the time. So I outworked everyone. But when I got to Wall Street, I lost my competitive, my competitive advantage was gone. Everybody was smarter than me or so I thought. Everyone was able to work six, seven days a week, 20 hours a day or whatever it was, 16 hours a day legitimately. So I thought, I'm going to get fired. This is classic imposter syndrome, right? I thought I'm going to get fired. So what do I do? I decide if I'm working from home, it'll take them longer to realize I'm not a good fit here or that I'm a dummy and that they need to fire me. So I thought I'm going to figure out how to work from home. And my mentor at that time, and I put that in air quotes because he was never around, he was, he was never in the office. And so I said, why, why aren't you ever in the office thinking I'm going to get the cheat code for working from home from this guy and that'll be the greatest value. Screw Blue Man Group. Forget all these other things. Forget McCormick and Schmick's Steakhouse. I want to learn how to work from home. And he goes, why do you think I'm working from home? And I said, well, you're, you're never here. What are you doing? He, and he said, I don't have to bill hours and worry about this. I bring in clients to the firm. I bring in clients via my relationships. And I said, oh. And that got me reeling. It was kind of a mild reaction because I, I didn't get what I wanted, but I got something far more important, which was, the idea that you don't just work your way to the top by grinding it out and then you, you get a network. You can party your way to the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You Play can golf, to, you can to golf, you can golf jujitsu and charity dinner your way to the top in many ways. Because <laughs> he, and he explained to me, this guy's name is Dave. He goes, look, you're going to learn on the job as fast as anyone else. What most people never learn is how to make the right connections outside the firm to bring in business. And that's why I got to be a partner 10 years before everybody else. And I thought, wait a minute, this is, the, this is the new competitive advantage that nobody even knows about. They're all trying to work harder, put in more hours, put in more FaceTime, get smarter by reading real estate, mortgage-backed securities documents in their spare time. Dave is out hanging out. And I thought, okay, there's a method to this madness. So I asked him <laughs> how he does it. He, of course, had no idea. He grew up in Brooklyn, much like yourself. And he, he says, well, you know, you get to know people and then they introduce you to other people. And, and I thought, okay, well, I know how theoretically this works, but what do I do? Just show up places and ask people to give us business. And he's like, no, man, you got to be friends with these people. Once they trust you and they like you, they're going to throw you business instead of somebody else that everybody wants to give business to their friends. So you don't even ask, they come to you when they need you. Yeah, like think about it. If, if you need something written, you wouldn't need that. But if I did, I wouldn't go, gee, I better Google how to hire a writer. I would look in my network and find a great writer. Good point. And I would commission that person. I would rather give you the business for an article 
you know, hey, Cal, I need an article about traveling to Africa. You know anything about that? Yeah, I've been doing it a bunch. I'll write you something. It's going to cost you 1500 bucks. Great. Here's, here's a check. I'm not going to go on Craigslist and find it. And that's the same way that corporations were giving business. I just had no idea because I was 27 and you don't know how business is generated. So that's how I learned this. He said, look, I, anytime an investment banker has a day off in the city of Manhattan, part of my job is to find out and hang out and, and get to know them. Because if you're sitting there golfing and you go, got any deals coming up as you're driving it down the range? Forget it. You know, th then, then they'll say, yeah, well, let me call you later. I think we got something in the pipes. But if you're cold calling the office and you're saying, hi, may I speak with Mr. Rosenblum, please? Hi, uh, my name is Jordan Harbinger. I'm a first year or second year associate. Can you send business my way? They're going to go, you're literally the last person I'm going to send business to. Right. I got my golf buddies that are clamming. I, I wasn't even, I was even thinking that you wouldn't have to ask about business yeah, you if don't. you're out golfing yeah. that it would just be assumed you're a lawyer you know about this hey i i got a problem here Could yeah you solve it yeah essentially what was happening is so insofar as i gathered was dave was out cycling doing jujitsu or golfing and some investment banker would go what if we pack a bunch of subprime mortgages can we sell securities against that i feel like that's something we're coming up with we're tossing that around what's the legality of that and dave goes he, in between putts, he says, let me look into that. And then he shoots an email off on his BlackBerry. It arrives on mine and it says, Jordan, get your ass in gear and research whether or not we can package subprime mortgages into securities packages. And of course, the answer is yes, which is what caused this whole mess in the first place in 2008. And so then we create a financial product with these investment banks. But those guys weren't sitting in the office banging their head against the wall at one o'clock in the morning. That was our job, right? So I thought if I figure out how to be the next Dave this is a good position for me to be in because nobody, when the whole law firm went under, Dave went into another firm as a partner and all the other partners I was working with, they just got punished by the recession. And I remember, I know Dave got hired as a partner at another firm because I had started on Sirius XM satellite radio and I'll jump backwards after this. I had started on Sirius XM satellite radio as an extension of my podcast. And I saw Dave in the elevator because his firm was in the same building and he would go, you look familiar. Do I know you? And I remember going, oh, I don't know. No, because I wasn't going to be like, yeah, I used to work for you. I can't believe you don't remember me. What's wrong with you? Because the reason is he saw me two times, you know, and of course, later I said, yeah, you know, I used to work at Thatcher and he and he'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he would just fake like the kid he remembered at the me. Starbucks. Right. The kid at the Starbucks. I almost threw my Blackberry at because he asked me why I was never in the office working. <laughs> I remember you, you knucklehead. But I had, I had decided that I was going to become the next Dave and I needed people skills to learn how to network and generate business. And that's when I started taking these Dale Carnegie classes and things like that. But the problem with Dale Carnegie classes was you'd say, okay, how do I network? And they'd go, make sure you look people in the eye and you have a firm handshake. And I was like, okay, that's a good start. But here's the problem. If people aren't giving you a million dollar legal contract, it's probably not because you didn't look him in the eye and have a firm handshake. It's because of this other intangible or nuanced reason that some guy in a sweater vest at the YMCA teaching a Dale Carnegie class is just not going to be able to tell you, <laughs> oh, you know? And so I started researching everything from psychology, nonverbal communication, what makes people like other people, how friendships are developed, brain chemistry, because I wanted to crack that code because I thought if I crack this code, I, I'm printing money. And I don't have to go to the office like Dave. I would much rather be in a Dave position, which seemed to me the ultimate job security. So I started researching that and I started talking about it at places like bars and at school. Because I remember I was still a law student. I started talking about this and people would go, this is really interesting. 
I, th I think I can use this for dating. And I'd go, yeah, I'm sure you could. And so we started applying it to dating because we were 26 years old. They say we. Oh, my friends and I. Because they were not interested at all in networking. They couldn't have cared less. And then, But they were interested in girls. They were interested in girls. And the, the way this overlapped was I knew that I needed to get reps in, right? I knew I needed to figure out how to create new relationships. And it wasn't going to be, hey, in three years or two years or next year, I'm going to be an attorney and I should connect with you. I'm on a college campus. The way you get reps in is you go out to bars alone, which is what I was doing, and talk to people and try to make some connections that way. Even if you don't use those connections later, I'm just getting the reps in. And a couple of friends of mine were like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that you're just walking up to random strangers and making friends with them and then they invite you to do stuff and you've met dozens of attractive women this way? I, I need to come out with you sometime. So I had this gaggle of guys that would come out with me all the time. And I started hanging out with some of the same people and we would go out like six nights a week. Now, are you using like the same lines and experimenting to see this line work, that line didn't, this tactic fell on its face? Yeah, but we were doing a lot of experiments. We had spreadsheets. We literally had Excel spreadsheets that were like, okay, I used this conversation starter over and over and over. And then after a while, I didn't need that stuff because I realized, one, it's creepy to use the same lines over and over. But I was 26, you know, throw me a little slack. But then after a while, I figured out that it was really your nonverbal communication that was giving a first impression because people judge you when they see you, not when you open your mouth. So it was like, oh, okay, so it matters how I walk into the room. And so it was like, oh, when I walk into the room, I want to be upright, open, smiling. We would test things. We would split test in internet marketing speak. Things like walking into the room with a smile, walking into the room looking tough, walking into the room looking neutral. And we found things like being open, positive, and confident, walking into the room with a smile, knowing the staff, greeting people you didn't know as if you did know them. That was what was most charismatic. So we sort of cracked this charisma code, if you will, and women loved it, and guys loved it. And we, were, we found what was really unusual. We went out there to, to meet girls. We're, again, we're in our 20s. This is what we were out there for. We found that we didn't have to pay for drinks anymore. Guys of all ages thought we were nice. We got invited to barbecues. We got invited to birthday parties. We had these huge social circles. And then Just it wasn't- Just by walking in the room the right way. And, and making introductions to other people. That was the other key was, if I walk into the room the right way and I start talking with people, they're like, this guy's cool. Let's invite, I've seen him here before. Let's invite him over. Oh, the bartender just gave us all a round of drinks because they like Jordan. So then it was, we're going to this person's birthday party. Okay, then we meet a bunch of people there. So it be, then it didn't matter. We didn't have to go up to girls and be like, hey, nice dress. It would look even better. Like all these dumb pickup lines. We didn't need those because women were like, oh yeah, my friend Tom thinks you're really cool. And we would meet a ton of guys and gals organically. And all that creepy pickup artisty dating BS just went out the window because- we realized the big takeaway was it's about improving who you are. It's not about tricking other people. And that's what all these other guys were doing wrong. How long did that take you to discover? At least a year. Whoa. I'm a little bit of a slow learner probably, you know, I, cause I was convinced that it was about what your pickup line was or, you know, what you were wearing and all this stuff. And this is well before pickup artists online was a thing. There weren't guys on the internet talking about this stuff at this point. This is early 2000 something, 2004, I think, or 2005 maybe. So there wasn't this online community that I knew of, of guys trading lines and wearing light up necklaces. All that stuff came later. And I, I didn't know what it was. I just assumed, 
when you walk up and you say something clever, dot, 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 you get the girl. But none of that ever mattered and none of that ever really worked that much. It was all about everything that you were doing that you didn't know you were doing. So, because if it was really about what you said, then it would be all magic pickup lines and any schmo who learned the same thing as anybody else would be able to deliver the same line and get it to work. But that, as you well know, that's not how it goes. So it became all about nonverbal communication. It became all about who else knows you and who likes you, trust factor, social proof, you know, the bartender, the staff, other guys and gals at the bar knowing who you are and, and knowing that you're a nice person, going to parties and having a vibrant social circle. All these X factor things turned out to be much more important, go figure, than the dumb thing you say when you finally get the guts to walk up to somebody. You know, you could really apply that to interviewing. Oh, yeah. I agree. But t tell, tell us how, because everybody wants to know now, especially well, me. It's a lot, so many people ask me, like, what's your first question? Mm. As if every time I walk into an interview, I'm going to ask the same question that's going to be like a can opener. Sure. And I explain there is no magic question. It's the way you walk in the room and what you're observing. And the question is going to come off that observation. Let's just make sure this is still going, doing its thing. Yeah, great. You're good. I'm always paranoid. Yeah. I, I can't You know help what? I, I am so relaxed around my equipment. I've only once forgot to press the start button. That's a good record. Only once. I've definitely forgotten to hit record more than once. Have you gone through the whole podcast? Yeah, there's been a few. There's been a few. <laughs> I mean, what this is like you know, 10 years ago. Um, you got to tell the interviewee what happened. But usually, you know, now I won't lie about anything because there's no, unless it's self-defense. Like, give me all your money. I don't have any. <laughs> if I don't have any, or like, I'm not going to say I have $100 in my sock. I got $100 in my other sock. You know, I'm traveling. I'll just say, you know, that's, that's a self-defense lie, but I won't say back, back in the day, I would say, yeah, there was a hard drive crash and I lost it. Now I would say I forgot to hit record, which is probably why I have a producer because I can say my producer forgot to hit record and then I don't look like an idiot. Although I do. Cause they're like, well, you're, you hired him. What's wrong with you? Uh, you're right. It's not just what's your first question. But that's what people assume because there's this layer of complexity that goes over things, right? Like um, if you ask a baseball player, well, you know more about baseball than me by a million. But imagine you say, how, come you hit the, how can you hit the ball so far? Their answer is not going to be, well, I swing really hard, right? That's, that might be the answer, but there's more to it than that. Clearly. But somebody like me doesn't really know. So I go, oh, okay. So I just need to practice swinging the bat with an elastic band tied to it so that I have more resistance and I'll be able to hit home runs? No, but that's what the layman understanding is of interviewing or of networking or of dating. Yeah, it, it, when I walk into the room for an interview, I'm looking around to, for clues as to who the person is. Could be a photo that stops me and makes me curious and then i'm asking about the photo sure now i had no idea that photo was there when i came in the room and so my first question was created only by the fact that i walked up and saw the photo sure and what you're telling me and I, i'm gonna try this the next time i walk into a bar 
is just by walking in with that sense of confidence, people are going to be attracted to it. Mm -hmm. And they're yeah. going to trust you because they're going to see that other people trust you. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it doesn't even just have to be the way that you walk in to the bar the first time. So one thing that we were doing early on, which I still think is a really important is we'd go to the same places all the time and we would go to them on off nights because having the bartenders, the doormen, the owners all know you is important. And you're not going to get that if you show up one Saturday night, they're busy. But if you show up Tuesday and Wednesday for three months and you're doing your homework at these places, I was doing my homework studying at some of these places. And then when it would start to get busy on a Friday and there'd be a line out the door, I'd walk up to the doorman and be like, Hey, Jimmy, how you doing? And he'd go, Hey, you coming in? And I go, yeah. And he'd go, come on in. And there'd be a line around the block and he'd walk us in. I remember once <laughs> everybody Saint watching as you yeah. get escorted in. Exactly. I remember one St. Patrick's day, we wanted to go to the Irish pub. There was one in town in Ann Arbor and uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. doesn't matter. And there was a line around the block. And I'd walk up and go, man, I don't know if we can get in tonight, huh? And the, he'd go, go to the back door. Sean's back there. We'd go to the back door and they go, hey, Jordan, what's going on, man? And I'd go, hey, cover's 10 bucks. I'm going to have to go to the ATM. He'd go, ah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And I'd go, okay. And I'd walk in and I'd walk up to the bar and there'd be 80,000 people in front of the bar. And the bartender would go, Jordan, I got you. Come to the end of the bar. And he'd know what I was drinking already. And he'd throw the drink down there. And I'd go, all right, here's, let me, let me find a, let me open up a tab. And they go, no, nah, it's all right. We got a busy night. No tab for you. Just come back to the end of the bar. Cause they were doing so much business. They didn't even care. The owner didn't even care. And he goes, owner's tables in the back. And I go, great. So I'd go up and there was an elevated platform and there was the owner's table and there were two or three people there, but it was this big table. And I would go and sit down and they'd go, oh, Hey, how you doing? And the security guy who was there knew who we were. And he would let us sit at the owner's table where the owner's friends were celebrating St. Patty's day. And so we just felt like royalty. We weren't paying for everything. It's the busiest night of the year and they were treating us like family and they would invite us to their birthday parties. And we were like unofficial staff at this place. Well, what happens when other guys and other gals see you getting treated like that? You don't need to be like, I'm so tough and attractive and cool. You have so much social proof. It does all the work for you. You just have to be there. You don't have to say anything. Right. And let these nonverbal clues do all the work. If you walk around telling people, yes, exactly. If, if I walk around telling people I'm smart and funny and interesting, how far do you think that's going to take me, right? People are going to go, this guy so full of himself. If other people say Cal's so funny, smart, and interesting, it goes a lot further. Yeah. But if no one has to say that you're smart, funny, and interesting, and they just find out. It's out of the park. The credibility's through the roof. Exactly. Wow. Okay. So you're 27 when you're finding this out? 27, yeah. 27. Great age to be finding this out. It is a good age. Of course, that back then I was like, if I'd known this 10 years ago, <laughs> well, I never would have went to law school because I'd probably have a job somewhere for that matter. But I would have been in sales and I would probably would be having this conversation on my jet or something, you know, if I'd known this back then. Because you find good sales guys, they know this stuff intuitively or they learned it somehow. But good sales guys and gals, they, they get this. And that's why they're killing it in, in one of the most cutthroat jobs you can find. I'm just putting this all in my pocket. You put it in your pocket. Putting yeah. it in my pocket, brother. <laughs> okay. So we know you can talk. You've exhibited that. 
And we now know that you have mastered this art of nonverbal communication. Where does that take you? And, and, and obviously friendships are formed and a podcast is going to start. Mm -hmm. What happens? So I go, I go and become a lawyer because I apparently just didn't get the memo at that point. I stay a lawyer for a while. The economy takes a downturn. I think we already kind of covered that a little bit. And I find out that I need to go get another job. And I realize I, I have a tough choice to make. Do I want to get another job that I kind of don't want? Or do I want to give this podcast thing a good run? And there were no advertisers on podcasts at this point. And right before the job had sort of tanked, a lot of the listeners of the show, which is, has now become the Jordan Harbinger show, but back then it was about dating and relationships, a lot of people would call or email, I should say, and say, hey, I want to learn this stuff, but I have questions. So we started charging $50 to $100 an hour for phone coaching. And I would be on the phone for like three, four hours a day coaching people from, there were people in Denmark, there were investment bankers, there were mortgage brokers. People in Denmark yeah. are calling. Yeah, on Skype, of course. <laughs> okay, so now are you thinking, this is really cool. Well, why not just do this? Oh, or yeah. That had crossed my mind. But then I realized, wow, do I want to be on the phone all day? doing this or do I want to pursue a real career? But then of course, when the, the economy started to go down and I had to choose between the show and getting another job, or at least to getting another job, it was tough because by that point, Sirius XM satellite radio, a friend of a friend had heard about us. We went on a show there. They gave us then our own show time slot. And I thought this is really fun. I was sort of moonlighting as this satellite radio talk show host do I want to keep doing the lawyer thing or do I want to give this other thing a shot? I was making money doing phone coaching. And then finally, right when I was having a little trouble making the decision, someone called and said, hey, Jordan, I need to learn this stuff in person. And I said, I don't have time. I'm an attorney. And he goes, I'll pay you $5,000 if I can come stay with you for two weeks. And I said, that's all of my, that's my rent and my credit card bill for living and I'm going to earn that in two weeks with one guy just crashing on my couch? Sure. So he came over and we started teaching him things like body language and nonverbal communication because we didn't have that much work to do at the firm because everything was going down. So we just took him out every night and he was like, this is great. So then we talked about that on the show. And then a bunch of people went, I didn't know I had the option to come and stay on your couch. Oh, no. I, I want to do this. I got five grand. Yeah. And so we just started taking money and we were like, all right, now, show how, up on how Tuesday. How did you negotiate that? Did, did, is five grand the going rate then? or It became it, the it going became, rate. It just became it just, the going. I think it was actually four back then. Now, right. if, but it's been so long. I mean, it's been 12 years. But Four it, grand, two weeks, you just come out. And are they paying for the drinks or are you paying for the drinks? Uh, we each pay for our own, as far okay. as I remember, because we didn't want that to cut into the margins, you know, too much. But <laughs> a lot of times we weren't even paying for the drinks because the bars the were bar like, whatever. Bartenders yeah, they just didn't even care. We're going to the same place every way. night. Yeah, pretty much. You know, you tip well. It's, it became a non-issue. And what I thought was really funny was we started to go, okay, four grand or five grand, whatever it is, for two weeks. And then we started to get sick of the clients because it's like, you've been here for a week and some people have their quirks and other people, they would get it and other people, they wouldn't get it. So we went, we should only let them stay for a week and then we can do more 
and either they get it and we can hone this into a curriculum or they don't get it and we got to figure something out. So we started doing 4,000 a week, Tuesday through Sunday so that we could have Mondays off and recover and have the maids come and stuff like that. And we started selling these things like crazy. People would email and call and we started selling them like crazy. And so at that point, my then business partner and I, cause I had to hire someone. It wasn't even really my business partner. He was a guy that I hired to come and help me because I had to go to work all day. We couldn't leave these guys home. We hired someone to create a curriculum with me and then teach them during the day and then take them out at night. And that's exactly what we did. We just- So you were working in law during the day. Right. And then these guys would get taught the curriculum and then you would just put it to practical use. Yes. In the bars. I'd show up around seven, done with work. We'd go out. They'd been learning a bunch of theory all day, curriculum. Oh man. And then we would go out and we would do it every single day. And we were making money hand over fist at this point. Now after a week, somebody could master this. If, if, if they were inclined. They could get really good enough to go out and then practice on their own without us having to kick them in the pants like, hey, go do this. They would have enough of a foundation where they could replicate this how, in their home How state. detailed was this? I mean, oh, I, man. I, I mean, we would, if they had, if they didn't look like grubby, we would take them shopping. We had women that worked with us that were stylists and they would take them shopping. And the stylist, I think the arrangement at that point was the stylist would work for free because she got a kickback from a handful of stores. So the guy would go and shop at, I don't know, like John Varvatos or Bloomingdale's. I mean, these are examples. These are boutiques that we would have in New York. I don't remember the name. But then the stylist would get paid for that, and then he would tip the stylist. So he'd come back with new clothes if needed. And then other things were, look, this conversation starter's not working for you. You're leaning in too far. And we would do things like videotape them and say, hey, look, you're, you're way too close to people. You're scaring them away. Lean back a little. Turn a little bit this way so you're not in her psychological space. Hey, you're only talking to the women. Make friends with the guys first. That Whoa. kind of stuff. I mean, it was nuanced. You couldn't get it anywhere else. You just couldn't. And this is all self-learned or? It was self-learned in that I read all of this stuff in books and online, and then we tried a lot of things. And then once the sort of online, people started talking about dating and stuff online, we would say, all right, what are these guys over in Hollywood talking about? Oh, they're talking about body position, okay. And then, then I had money, so I started flying around to California and other states and going, teach me the stuff you're talking about on the internet. So I became a client of all these other sort of like dating coaches or pickup guys. And I would take the stuff, the good stuff from them and I would put them in our program. So we started adopting what works. And what we found was a lot of the people teaching things online, they were totally full of crap. They, they had no idea what they were talking about. They were internet marketers. They were lying. They weren't, they were making the stuff up. And then other people that were really good at it were often like, we would get wind of certain guys. I remember one time we got an email, Hey, my older brother is the best I've ever seen with women. He's amazing. And I'd say, tell him I'll give him 50 bucks an hour. And I want to talk to him for an hour or two. And so we would set that up. I would send somebody, I think PayPal at the time. And I would say, what do you know? And how do I learn it? And they'd say, Oh, well this, 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 and this. And there were a couple of occasions where I was so blown away by the things the guys would tell, was telling me, I would fly them to New York and see if it would hold up in New York, or I would fly to them do a test run for a night, go, okay, this guy knows what he's doing, then fly them to New York and have them show me and then go, okay, I need to teach this to the guys that are coming in. So I was really collecting kind of cutting edge at the time 
I hate to say dating technology, but that's really what it was. It was like persuasive, influential tips and tactics that I would then apply for our clients. And then afterwards I realized the reason I was selling so many of these boot camps and programs was because I was applying the stuff that we were learning about dating to making friends and to sales. And that's when I realized this isn't for single losers trying to pick up girls. That was one angle, but we, we, some of our biggest clients were married sales guys or mortgage bankers. And they would send their whole sales team to us as a corporate retreat. And we would train them and the single guys had a blast and the married guys would have a blast. And then we realized, <laughs> wait a minute, this is like a real corporate skill set. We're just doing kind of a sleazy version because we're 27, 28 years old at this point. But, but there's a real moneymaker here. We just don't, we didn't get the brand. You know, we had, we had yet to nail down the brand. So that's what we started doing. And that's when we started doing satellite radio for a while and we were really leaning into that. And we would take calls about dating and relationships and we became the experts in this field on the East Coast. Now, how does that lead into the podcast? Right, so the podcast was the lead gen, the lead generator. And every time I learned something new, I would give it away for free on the show. And I still do that. Every time I learn something interesting, I always give it away on the Jordan Harbinger show, whether it's an interview with somebody like you or it's just something I randomly learned that's, that's helpful. And the idea was all these people that were selling training or anything online, they were always like, if you buy my book, I'll give you the secret to X, Y, Z. And I, was, I would buy all that stuff and be like, here's all the secrets in that book. It's not that interesting. I went out and tried all of them. You know, I went out and tried the top 100 things that this guy's selling, and here's the three that work. And I would give them away for free, and everyone goes, you're an idiot. You're giving it away for free. You don't want to be giving it away for free. You want to be charging for it. And I said, nah, not really. I'm a lawyer. I don't need the money. And I want to give it away for free. And what that did is it generated so much trust with the audience. And you would think, if you're giving it away for free, no one's going to hire you. The opposite was true because they would go out and try it and go, I can't believe this worked. I can't believe that worked. So when they needed to take things to the next level, they didn't go to the guy who said, I have the secret. And if they you, went back they to, went to you, me, you, you became a master of trust. Trust. Trust was the currency. And I, I, this had never occurred to me at any other time in my life. Trust was the currency that was the most valuable. When people know, like, and trust you, you can sell them things. I don't encourage people to abuse this. You sell them things that are going to help them. They know that you can help them because you've already proven it. Everybody else is just teasing them. And then they have to take a risk. But if you give them stuff that's free, that's better than other people's stuff that they charge for, then you have trust and nobody else can build that as quickly or as easily. All right. So now you've got the podcast going. Yeah. You keep saying we. Yeah. My, my, at the time, I had hired some people to help me. And I guess we were business partners, but we didn't even have any sort of formal agreement. These are guys that were like crashing on my couch, you know, that, that were doing some of the training. And we had some sales guys that we had brought in. We had a secretary at that time that was helping with the books and stuff like that. And so that, that's the we. But I was going to work by day at this law firm doing very minimal work because there was just nothing to do. And then by night, going out all the time and creating curriculum. And then eventually there was absolutely no work. And so during the day I would create and teach curriculum. And then at night I would take these guys out at night. And the one thing that really separated us was we were the only guys that were going out and doing any dating stuff that didn't involve lying. It didn't involve making up stories. It didn't involve a bunch of BS. 
It didn't involve any weird tricks. It was just teaching guys to be a better version of themselves. And that worked better than all this pickup artist BS pickup line stuff that was going on on the internet. So we became like the white hat version of dating. But what we really were, and we didn't realize this at the time, we were self-help. We just didn't know what self-help was. Where did you take that? The Sirius XM satellite radio show was going really well. And we, we had the podcast at the time and we decided to expand the business. And the problem was me being from the Midwest, I assumed everybody had a great work ethic and wanted to buckle down and do a business. So everybody that I hired, who was a friend of mine, after a while, their work ethic started to crumble. Guys would just be drinking all day and hanging out. Guys would be screwing around all day. And I was doing a ton of the work and I went, what the heck is going on here? And then I realized some of the friends that I hired, they were stealing money from me. They were, you know. So you become the master of trust. Yeah, and people took advantage of it. And I didn't get it. I was confused. I thought, what the heck? We're all making money. This is a really fun gig. Why are people stealing? And then I realized that not everybody wanted to be in business. A lot of people just wanted to grift. And I learned some hard lessons that way because I never expected my friends to do that. And one of these things that I sort of like maxims that people go, never hire your friends. That, that's all fine and good to say that. But come back to me when you've got a business, you need to hire somebody for an $80,000 a year job and you only have $30,000 a year to pay them. Who's going to work with you? your friends, people who believe in your vision, right? There you go. So tell me, hey, don't hire your friends, dummy. Tell me that when you don't have the ability to compensate people what they're worth. And that's why startups, they get funding so they can pay people because otherwise you got to hire your friends and that's not a good strategy. But if you don't have funding, you're hiring your friends and all these genius business consultants who say that's a bad idea, give me another option, you know, give me a better option. But I learned the hard way and Every time I've done business with my friends since then, it's only a matter of time. And I'm not saying everybody's bad or greedy. Work ethics differ. Uh, Egos get hurt. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong in a business. And you might find that your friend secretly resents the fact that everybody likes you or that you're earning more because you're the sales guy. I had all these problems. So our business started to expand. And eventually I had to fire a bunch of people or they just left because they would steal some product that we developed and they'd go, well, this is ours. I worked on it. And I'd go, I paid you to do that for the last year. So they would take it. But what, what was really gratifying, and I know this sounds petty, is they would fail pretty quickly. And I realized the reason for that was because the podcast was what was generating the trust. It was a personal brand that involved generating trust and creating something that people loved. So it wasn't the product, it wasn't the ideas, it wasn't the website, it wasn't even the email list. It was the trust that you have with the listener in a podcast or audio format because people feel like they know you. That's what was generating the trust. So everybody who would sort of peel away would just fail after a few months or even maybe a year or two at most. And so I was always kind of last man standing. So I started to expand, expand, expand. I eventually moved to California from New York because it was less expensive and it had nicer weather. I don't know if you, you noticed. Definitely noticed. And, uh, and so I started to do business out here in LA. And I met my wife, Jen, and moved up to Northern California. And I decided pretty much, even, even before I met Jen, I had decided, hey, look, at that point, I think I was like 33. 
it's a little pathetic to be out cruising around trying to pick up girls with 24-year-olds when you're that old. Did you and meet Jen through a non-verbal way? No, she listened to the show. <laughs> she and her brother were big show fans. And so Jen originally went out with me because she goes, I wonder if he's the same way on the show in real life. Because she's like, I like who he is on the show, but I, if, I wonder if this is a dumb act that he does. I guess not a dumb act, a trustworthy Comes integrity just. act. So she went out with me and she's like, wow, you're exactly the same person as you are on the show. And so, you know, got married. I mean, there was a little time in between there, but we got married after that. Okay. Yeah. So now the show is building up. Yes. And at this point, are you sure this is what you're going to do with your life? Is law been yeah, left law, behind? Law had been kicked to the curb a while back because I thought, in fact, the, the last little scintilla of maybe I'll be a lawyer went away when all of when that firm closed and then all my other friends sort of scattered to the wind who were lawyers they got new jobs some of them and then they quit those jobs and they were like being a lawyer sucks and I remember everyone that made fun of me from law school for doing the show the with the show that became the Jordan Harbinger show and the satellite radio show everyone that had made fun of me all my classmates not that everyone did but a lot of them did they wrote to me maybe two or three years after we graduated and they went, man, you're lucky you figured it out early. I'm stuck in this law firm job. I hate it. I don't even have time to have kids. My relationships have all gone south. I'm working 100 hours a week. This is terrible. It's not worth the money. You're so lucky. And some of them even said, I'm sorry I made fun of you because you really were just ahead of the game. And I wasn't really ahead of the game. I just knew that I wasn't a, law wasn't a you fit for me. You just found your yeah. place. Right, I found my place. It wasn't like I know what's right for me. It was just I knew that law was wrong, and I stumbled into podcasting and talk radio. Now, at what point does the podcast come to be called The Art of Charm? That was the original name of the show, or one of the original names of the show. That's why I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the original names. of the. Before that, it was like, it was called Pick Up Podcast. Oh, my God, I forgot about that because it, it was about <laughs> picking up girls. That's so dumb, that name. And I wanted to change it, and my business partners wouldn't let me change it. And finally, I changed it, and I said, fire me. I'm not going to be the face of a d some dumb dating brand anymore. I can't take it. So we named it The Art of Charm because that was the name of the training company that we were using, and we were training people to meet people then, and it was a little classier. And I had an another problem with that later on because I didn't want to do that either. And that's what led to the eventual split and me starting the, off on the Jordan Harbinger show. And we'll get there yeah. down the road. Okay. So this podcast is picking up listeners. Yeah. And it's more than a decade. And you're getting what, like 4 million listeners a, a year or so? Or? Oh, it was like a month. Yeah. It a was, month. It was I'm 4 sorry. million listeners a month. 4 million a month. Yeah. Oh, actually, the peak of the Art of Charm was 3 million a month, I think. 3 okay. point whatever. Um, the Jordan Harbinger show now gets over 4 million a month. But back then, yeah, it was 3 million downloads a month, which for a podcast is just insane. It's just ridiculous. You know, it's. It's insane. It's a huge number of people. And still, there were no advertisers on shows or anything. It was just lead gen for what we were doing. It was just a massive, massive online brand. And so, four million people a month are tuning into this. And there's no advertising at this point. Not really. Just advertising for what we were doing. Right. Yeah. And, and that's coming straight back to you. And, and so mm -hmm. the business that you've established is really at the core of everything. Yeah. And the podcast is the megaphone. Exactly. Yeah, the podcast was the megaphone. 
the training was at the core of everything. And eventually I started getting really sick of talking about dating and relationships, as one might expect, especially after I met Jen. So then I started interviewing people I was interested in. I mean, I've had you on my new show, but I had General McChrystal or you know Shaquille O'Neal or something like that. And it had nothing to do with dating, it had nothing to do with relationships. And I realized I really like interviewing. I really like talk radio. I mean, talking, I should say, and listening especially. Although you can't get any evidence of me liking listening during this particular episode. <laughs> but but I, I, I like doing it. And so I realized, oh, okay, I might have cut my teeth on talk radio talking about dating and relationships and nonverbal communication and all that stuff. But, but I really just have a passion for the conversations. And that was why I took the show in a different direction. Now, as you know, my business partners, they did not like that at all. That was, hey, why are you talking about this other stuff? We're supposed to be talking about dating and relationships. And so after that a while- was where the, that was where the crack first appeared. Exactly. A little fracture there. Exactly. Was there a moment where, a first moment where you went to a bar or something and it came up? With my business partners? Yeah. They there was one guy in particular, one guy was kind of totally checked out. There was another guy who was, he, his mode is passive aggression. He comes from a pretty crummy household and his family's kind of, I mean, to put it bluntly, just kind of crazy. And he would sort of start doing this passive aggressive punishment stuff. And so I isolated myself from the business because I just didn't want to be around that. I come from a very happy, functional family I don't have drama among my friends. I don't have drama in my personal relationships. I don't have drama in my family. This guy was a fountain of drama. You couldn't get away from it. Drama followed him everywhere. And as we know, when drama follows people, places the common denominator is them. It's, it's something they're doing. So I started to isolate myself from this. And they said, you know, you seem disinterested in the business. And eventually I moved to Northern California with Jen. And I said, I'm not disinterested in the business. I'm disinterested in dating. I want to do a talk show where I can talk about whatever I want and I'll still funnel all the dating leads to you guys. You can do dating products and I'll advertise them, but I want the show and I want to leave the company. And they so, said, no So way. we could see what, what's happening here because they're focused on the company and the incoming business and you are the voice of the business. Right. So this yeah. cannot have a happy ending. It, it can't have a happy ending. And, I and, mean, looking at it from the beginning, you could see this is not going to a good place. No, and these guys had not, they have no clue how to run a business. They had no idea. I mean, we, we had no idea how to run a business. We, we didn't know what we were doing. So the money was going all over the place and these guys just wanted to get more money so they could buy a Porsche. And I was, I was married or getting married. I, I, shouldn't, I wasn't married at the time. I was going to get married and I thought, I don't need a Porsche. I want stability. I don't care about looking cool on the internet. I just want to do what I like. They asked me to co-sign a loan. Now, I was the only one with a house, the only one who owned a car. These guys own an Xbox and a dog. So I said, no way. I'm not co-signing a loan that you guys are going to waste on vacations. So that caused a rift, which then caused them to say, you know what? Fine, then you're out of here. And I said, good. I don't mind. Hold it. They can just say, fine, you're out of here? They, or they can't. We negotiated an amicable split, and then they didn't uphold their end of the deal. And now they're getting sued by four different parties because my network, a bunch of employees that they fired and didn't pay, and a bunch of contractors all got screwed um, by 
what comes down to just greed. So I was forced to start over from scratch because I wasn't going to wait for a lawsuit to resolve. Oh, so I'm an you attorney. see the mushroom cloud going up. I see the up. mushroom cloud going and up. And you know, yeah. I got to get out of here. Yeah. And now at that point, you know what you love to do. Right. You know you're good at it. You know that there are millions of people out there who like listening to you. Yeah. And you leave. But I know that that makes you nervous. Oh, yeah. I was super nervous. And what was really hard about it was it wasn't like, look, let's figure this out. It was as vindictive as it could have gotten. And I, I should have seen that coming. I actually did see that coming in part because I knew that the guys that I was working with, it's really just one guy. The other guy was totally checked out. I knew that he had a messy life. He'd never, he never had close friends. He never had good relationships. He'd never had a good family life. So I knew that this wasn't going to be something where he just decides, here's what's best for everybody. He want, he's, it's a zero-sum situation. Everyone has to lose, even if it's him. And there's this old Russian proverb or fairy tale, whatever you want to call it. I think it's a proverb, and I might butcher it, but... You don't have to say it in Russian. It, okay. It was something... <laughs> thank you. It was something along the lines of, there's a Russian guy who, who gets a, a genie out of a bottle or something like that, and the genie says, you, have, you can make a wish, but just bear in mind that anything you wish for, your neighbor's going to get two. And this guy, not wanting his neighbor to get an advantage on him, says, fine, poke one of my eyes out. And that was the, that was the way that we ha were doing business back then with each other, which was though the, the company could lose, our clients could lose as long as I lost personally more. That was the way this guy wanted to handle it. So that's why he's getting sued into oblivion right now by these other four parties and why I think the company is in deep trouble and, and he's just never going to be a successful person because of the way that he operates. And so I knew that I had to leave the company and he had made that decision for me as well. He basically locked me out of everything. And one, a guy who I, I could say mentors me a little bit here and there or a lot, Norm Pattis, he owns podcast one and he started Westwood one and he's one of the wealthiest guys in LA. And he said, here's a tip. These idiots are going to fail, but they're going to take a while to do it. Potentially, you need to go off on your own. You've got the brand. You've got the audience. I'll help you. So I started the Jordan Harbinger show fresh from zero on podcast one and took my listener base back from the old company because people left when I was gone. And that goes back to that trust. They didn't care about hearing these other schmoes on the microphone who'd never bothered to do any of the work. They cared about where did Jordan go? Because I'd been talking to them for 11 years. Wow. I get it. So they followed me over, which was a miracle. I mean, I was nervous. You, I think I told you. You, I'm you were telling me like, because I remember when we talked, it was right after this. Yeah. And it's like you were up at night sweating, oh, wondering, yeah. are people going to follow me? Yeah. It was awful. It was so stressful. But it also had the, the upside was, my listener base, the Jordan Harbinger show fans, they all rallied around. And I mean, I had lawyers reaching out and giving me help. I had therapists that were like, let's talk occasionally because you need to de-stress. I had people sending me supplements, food, coffee, <laughs> oh, <man>. electronics. Um, 
<laughs> you know, my listener base was like, this, save Jordan. It was like, save Jordan. It was like, save Ferris. Like there were probably t-shirts out there that say save Jordan. It was <laughs> unbelievable. And it was so heartwarming that it gave me a huge boost of confidence. And Jen and I really just picked up after a few months. And now 10 months later, the Jordan Harbinger show is bigger than the art of charm ever was. And we're happier than we have ever been. So in a weird way, this super selfish, destructive act by the guys over at my old company was the best thing that ever happened to me. And now it's funny because we see them scrambling. The guy's name is AJ. He uses my last name. He well, calls that's him, what I was so weird. Add, yeah. But how long had he been doing that? For a while. And it was always a point of contention. But I thought... Eh, it's fine. You know, it's weird that he does it, but he's deeply insecure. So whatever, what's going to, you know, whatever. But then when I left, I thought, okay, he's going to for sure change it because now it's just creepy. And he did, he didn't. And I thought, oh my gosh, is this all this guy has? My last like, name. Yeah. It's, it's very bizarre. And I realized it's either deliberately confusing people or it's really like the only thing he has left connecting him to the brand. So it's, it's kind of pathetic but I'm not even worried about it because listeners aren't dumb. They know that they know what my voice sounds like and they can tell the difference. And you can see all the one star reviews on the old show. It's just, it, it, you can't pretend that you have a skill that you don't. I can't say, well, my friend's been playing basketball for 10 years. So now I'm going to go play basketball. I'm just going to pick up where he left off. Let me change my last name to, uh, Jordan. Jordan. Yeah. Let me change my last name to Jordan. James. Or, or like, I'm, I'm going to be Jordan Curry and I'll, I should be just as good as, as Steven, you know, like in the NBA. It doesn't work. And so I've seen that business decline like crazy from the outside. And of course, all this lawsuit stuff is just a big distraction and a waste of time. So I'm kind of letting my lawyers just handle it. But it is, it is weird to watch. And it, it makes me go, thank God I'm not working there anymore. I mean, it's just every day that goes by, I just look at it and I look at the guys that are still there and I look at this guy using my last name and I just think, what a pathetic situation. And so I'm so glad to be gone. I, it just could not, have, this could not have turned out better for me. And what does this teach you about partnerships? Because the, the way you were describing people hiring their friends for 30 grand because they don't have the 80, yeah. uh, often we need partners because we can't do it by ourselves. Agree, 100%. And one thing that has been interesting is I'll, I'll tell people about this particular situation and I'll say, and this is what's going on. And they go, well, I bet you learn no more partnerships for you. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to let this become the thing that makes me bitter for the rest of my life. I'm going to take this as a lesson in many ways, but also the fact is this, like I said, ended up being the best thing that ever could have happened to me, being ejected from that company and being able to start over and take with me. I took the whole team with me. Everybody that I worked with back at the old company left when I left. So I didn't have to retrain anyone. I didn't have, I had to start the show over, but everybody important came with me. And it wasn't really like you were starting anything over. You it were wasn't. just doing next week. I picked up right where I left off. I didn't miss one episode of the show. Uh, the old show ended on a Thursday. The next episode was supposed to be on a Tuesday. I recorded an episode of the Jordan Harbinger show on Saturday with Mark Garagos, who's an attorney. And uh, I released it on Tuesday as you would as scheduled. And you can see that it was like this really low traffic day. 
and then the old company, they didn't release a show for weeks and weeks and weeks. They didn't know what they were doing. And then you can see people just Googling for, for me and finding those search results. You can see the search history in, in these graphs and stuff. And you can see people going like, what happened to Jordan Harbinger? Where's Jordan Harbinger? So I started the Jordan Harbinger show and it took off, took off immediately. Um, but it took a long time to ramp up, but it, it started to take off right away. But going back to your question, you're right. I, I didn't want to, this to become the thing that made me bitter about this. I wanted this to be a lesson and I wanted to take positive things away from it, which was sometimes this bad stuff gives you an opportunity. You can lament all you want and stay up all night and lose sleep like I did. But really what you should look at is this is a great opportunity. And one of the things that I did, and I strongly encourage everyone listening to do this as well. What I did is I wrote down 10 or 12 people who I should have kept in better touch with. And I called them and asked them for advice. And some of the people I called, I kept in touch with just fine. And I asked them for advice too. But if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking like, this will never happen to me, do me a favor, humor me on this, make a list of 10 or 12 people. I call this exercise layoff lifelines, by the way. Imagine you get laid off, your business implodes or something like that. Who are the 10 or 12 people that you wish you'd kept in touch with or that you would call for advice? Make that list and then reach out to them now when you don't need something from them. <laughs> because I was calling people and I was just like, thank God I kept in touch with this guy. Thank God I kept in touch with that guy. And I called my friend who used to run 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which is a huge company. And I said, this is what happened to me. What do I do? And he goes, you know what? This exact same thing happened to me 12 years ago. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. And I went, really? Are you just telling me that to make me feel better? And he goes, no, here's what happened. He told me the story. And I went, oh my gosh. And then I called another friend of mine and he goes, oh yeah, yeah, this similar thing happened at this law firm. And man, am I glad because I started my own business. Now I run it with my wife and me and my kids are happy as we ever could have been. And I was like, wait a minute. So it turned from being this sad, horrible, scary thing into you don't know it yet, Jordan, but this is the best thing that's ever happened to you. Forget about the lawsuit. That'll be over soon. And then you're going to have your own thing going. And the other reason this is so good is because I was making money doing the old thing. I was making money with all this dating BS and all this stupid stuff that we were doing at the old company. The getting was so good, there's no way I would have voluntarily left. I had to have this shake out the way that it did. And even if the deal that those guys had proposed, even if they had been honorable and honored that deal, I still would have had to promote their stupid stuff. And now I don't have to do that. I don't have any non-compete. I don't have some agreement that I had to get signed in order to escape. I started over and now I can do whatever I want, but I never would have done that on my own because I would have been too scared. So it was kind of like getting pushed off the high dive and then finding out that you can swim. Well, just looking at you and reading your body language. Oh yeah, you're an expert you're, in this way. <laughs> like you're the happiest guy in the world. Yeah, I'm extremely happy with how this is sh shook out. The lawsuit aside, but I'm, again, that law degree is finally coming in handy again because I'm doing a lot of the heavy lifting, so it's not costing me that much, and it's also just part of my story, you know? And where are your next steps? So I'm working with a lot of agents and companies, and I'm trying to think if there's any sort of things I'm not supposed to talk about, but essentially... I'm taking my show to YouTube, which is great. Um, I'm, I'm doing the Jordan Harbinger show. It's one of the largest shows, again, in Apple Podcasts. And I'm really enjoying the conversations that I'm having. I'm meeting a lot of amazing people. I'm still working a lot with my team that I took from the old company. And 
I'm looking at some bigger opportunities. I'm trying to think about what I'm allowed to talk about, and I'm not so sure, so I'm erring on the side of caution here. But essentially, some of the agencies are the same agents that work with really well-known radio and television personalities, and we're packaging shows, we're packaging different types of live shows and things like that, opportunities. So it's, it's great because even though the company revenue isn't the same as what the old company was, my personal income is actually gone up or at least did the same when my lifestyle has gone way up because I don't have to deal with any of the associated kind of junk that I was dealing with before. So it's, and I work with my wife, which is awesome. So it's kind of like not, I won't say winning the lottery because that comes with not so many downsides. This was, I guess my lottery can analogy. come with some downsides. Yeah, that's true. It like, can. A lot it sure of those can. people end up broke. That's true. This is more like, what am I going to, it's more like I got thrown into a fire and then when I crawled out, I realized I was fireproof and I had no idea the whole time, you know, like it burns, it still hurts, but I walked out and went, how the heck did this happen? It's almost like, I think getting pushed off the high dive was probably a better analogy. Getting pushed off the high dive, thinking you're going to drown and then finding out you're a good swimmer. It was mostly what it was because I never would have voluntarily tested myself like this to have to rebuild from zero. But since I was thrown overboard now I'm like, wait a minute, there's nothing I can't. So I have a renewed sense of confidence. Not only did I rebuild the Jordan Harbinger show, but I realized I can do all of this other stuff that I never would have been able to do before. And it's all this stuff that makes me happy. And I don't have to worry about people complaining or people telling me, hey, we got to generate more leads. I don't have to do that stuff anymore. It's, it's the ultimate sense of freedom. It's probably what it feels like when you divorce a crazy person or when you break up with somebody who's really bad for you. How much is a partnership like a marriage? That's a great question. If people realized how much partnerships in business were like marriage, they there would be fewer partnerships. What people don't tell you is that getting into a business partnership with somebody is like getting married. If you would say, let's get business married, a lot of people would go, well, I don't know. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I've known you for like six months. This isn't a good idea. But when people say, let's start a business, it looks like it's all upside. Yeah, this is great. You're cool. And I'm cool. And this is fun. And you're funny. And I'm funny. And well, let's do this. Right. But if you say, let's get business married. Next time you're thinking about jumping into business with somebody, say, let's get married only in terms of business, because you really are. You co-own that intellectual property. They can lock you out of your house. It's not right, but they theoretically could. They can make your life really annoying. They can cost you a lot of money. They can make really dumb decisions. All of these things were what was going on in the old business, and you just have to tolerate it because they're your partners. So I strongly encourage people not to just say, I'm never having a partner again. But what I would say is, you'd have to throw everything in the pot. You can say, hey, you want to do a product together or a show together, great. Let's make another business entity. We'll do that together. But I'm not going to give you half of what I've got going right now. There's no way. I've come too far. And I, I strongly encourage people to protect themselves. It doesn't mean don't trust anyone. What it does mean is, it's, is if you're an attorney and you want to start a law firm with somebody, that's fine. But don't throw all of your entire book of business in with this other person who you just met and say, yeah, everything's all one bank account now, ease into it. You know, think about it as getting business married. You might want a business date for a while. And people just don't really do that. They don't, because it's exciting to just jump into a business. It seems like you're moving forward. 
But then if after a while, the, the veneers wear off or it starts to smell a little funny, unraveling it is just as hard as getting a divorce in many ways because you've got this intellectual property or this email list or this other podcast or whatever, and you've got to figure out how to divide this indivisible thing. And if one party doesn't want to be reasonable, you're in deep trouble. You're in trouble. So if we look at the whole arc of this story, has your definition of the word trust changed at all? In a way, maybe. But what I did find was the insurance policy that you can't purchase is the trust that you build with your fans or your listeners or your friends if you don't have a show. Because when I finally had, when I had to start over, when I had to start the Jordan Harbinger show over from scratch, one of the things that happened was I, I, the first 10 or 12 calls I made were so successful, getting great advice, getting great support from people that I called 100 more people. And I realized that the network that I'd built over the last 11 years, as Harvey McKay would say, dig the well before you're thirsty, that set of relationships, that trust, that no like trust, whatever you want to call it, that I'd built, that network that I'd built over the last decade was what saved my butt. It wasn't just, hey, Jordan, you got some skills now, you can do a show. It wasn't just, hey, you've got a good work ethic, you'll be fine. It was, I know everyone that I need to know to make my new venture successful. And the reason is because I didn't deprioritize networking like most people do. I actually made that a top priority to get to know people, to help other people without the expectation or attachment of anything in return. Well, that's like when we met, you were telling me how to start a podcast. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking like, he's so helpful. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. What? I'm glad that that helped. And the reason I did that was because I started to, I decided a long time ago to live my life that way, to help other people and not worry about what's in it for me. And it's actually not that hard to do and it feels good. And then if you ever need something, you can call upon hundreds of people and say, Hey, I don't suppose that I could get a quick favor. And a lot of those people will jump at the chance to help you because you helped they them remember. seven years ago um, with some thing that they needed, you know? And which, takes us back to the start where I was talking about how quickly I was able to put the plug the wires into the Zoom H6. Yeah. And this comes from you. Yeah. This comes from you. It's 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 really wild to see this whole it, it's not a transformation because you stayed yourself and true to yourself the whole time. Yeah. You, you were just kind of riding these waves. That yeah, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. And I think that's what makes me want to do the show, the Jordan Harbinger show, is like I get to interview people like yourself, like General McChrystal or Russell Brand or somebody like that, and I get to say, teach us the thing that's most important to you. My thing is networking and relationships. That's what I constantly teach is networking and relationship development and how this is like the most important thing you can do in your life is surround yourself with the right people because I've already surrounded myself with the wrong people as well and the right people by chance. And it's been the best thing that's ever happened. It's been the highest lever. It's been the reason I'm successful. And so I like to get these bits of wisdom from other people and then teach those to the Jordan Harbinger Show audience because that stuff cumulative over time is life-changing for the listener. Because if you can learn a few of these skills and master them, you're not going to be stuck in a job you don't like. You're not going to be stuck in a relationship you don't like. You're going to be able to create the life that you love. You're going to enjoy what you're doing. You're going to have a great family and great friendships. This is the stuff that makes people truly happy. It's not about online marketing or 
something. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about developing the right kind of people around you. And science bears this out, that people who are surrounded by other emotionally healthy people are emotionally healthy and happy themselves. And the opposite is also true. And I, I know that from my own personal experience. And so that's what drives me to do the show. Well, I'll tell you what bears it all out. You married the right woman. Oh yeah, she's great. She's great. And when it comes down to it, the fact that you were able to do that tells you you're able to do, if you can apply what you learn on that journey to the whole business journey, you're set. Easier said than done, yes, but you're, you're right. It's one of the biggest, one of the greatest things about I mean, Jen. you started this like as a pickup artist. Yeah. And then you found the perfect woman for you. Yes, exactly. And, and so just by following that course, on a business level, it seems to me you're going to end up in the same place. I sure hope so. And one of the one of the greatest gifts that Jen, my wife, has given me is the fact that if she believes in me, then maybe there's something to it. So anytime I'm like, oh, I can't do this, I just look at her and I'm like, well, she signed on the, she put it all on, on red, right? She bet on me. So one, I shouldn't disappoint her, but two, she's no dummy. She knows what she's doing, right? So that's reassuring. And... So whenever I sort of feel that pinch of, of self-doubt, I just go, well, she wouldn't have done this if she thought that I was a knucklehead. And so working with her is really the, the thing that keeps us all going. And honestly, the, the fans of the Jordan Harbinger show that write in all the time make it all worth it because I feel like I have this huge extended family of people that I can truly count on for a lot of things. And people go, oh, you can't count on these people. They just listen to you on the internet. I put that to the test. You know, when I started over... These are the same people, like I said, who are sending me tea, coffee, cookies, and support and telling all their friends. And it's, it's a real thing. It's, they don't have to do that. I'm never going to be able to, they, they would never, I would never know if they didn't, right? They, they don't owe me anything and they still did it. And so that's why this has become more than just a hobby or a pastime or a job. It's become this calling because I feel like I'm really serving these people who well, listen. I got to say, it's a delight talking to you. It's a delight knowing you. And it's a delight knowing, without knowing where you're going, knowing it's going to be to a good place. So you stay on your road, brother. You know it, Cal. And look, I, this has been a, a pleasure. It's been a pleasure knowing you as well. And I'm excited for you to write a book about interviewing. Is that still happening? It's coming down the tracks. Okay, because I want to I wanna not only learn everything that's in there, I want to make sure that this is accessible because this is important stuff. And as you know from listening to podcasts, anybody who's listening to this who listens to other shows, the world needs to know a thing or two about how to conduct an interview, and you're the guy to, you're the guy to teach us that, I think. Well, I think you are the perfect subject today, so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss who set me off on this journey when he had me come on his podcast and recommended that I start my own. And Jordan Harbinger for this conversation and for pushing me to make more connections in a new way. It occurred to me after I sat with Jordan that maybe I should let people know a little more about what I'm doing outside of big questions. For the last couple of years, 
I've been speaking about the power of questions and the power of storytelling at companies and conferences around the world. And I love it. The more I've been on the road and the more I've mentored, the more I've discovered how difficult it is for many businesses to tell their stories. Give you a concrete example. Friend I met along the way, guy by the name of John Perret, works in the restaurant industry. One of the basic questions he asks restaurant owners is to complete a sentence like this: "People come to my restaurant because." You'd be amazed how many restaurant owners can't complete that sentence, or they say something like, "Because the food is good." The sad thing about this is that there frequently is a story that can follow the word "because." Maybe even a great story that would make people immediately want to come through the restaurant's front door. Look, every company needs to be able to tell its story, especially in this age of information overload. Stories grasp attention. Stories endure. It's like the best-selling author Yuval Noah Harari writes in the opening to his book Twenty-One Lessons for the Twenty-First Century. Humans think in stories rather than in facts, numbers, or equations, and the simpler the story, the better. You want to connect with humans, you better be able to tell your story. And not only do you need to do so in a unique and compelling way, but that story has to be told in a uniform way across the breadth of the entire company to avoid confusion. This can go pretty deep. But one thing is very clear: if a company is having a hard time telling its story, life is not going to be easy. You can see why it's been so gratifying for me to use questions to help companies dig down to their essence and find their stories, and then to help them shape those stories. Because after all, that's what I do: I ask questions and I tell stories. It's hard to describe. How great it feels to leave an event or a workshop, knowing that the story I've recognized has instantly become a rallying cry, and it was there all along. The company just didn't recognize it because everybody was busy going about doing his or her job. Jordan Harbinger really opened my eyes in our conversation. I've never felt comfortable with self-promotion. But if I don't tell you what I'm doing, how are you gonna know? So, if you know of any company that needs help in this area, needs help telling its story, feel free to let them know what I'm doing. They can always reach out to Kevin, the manager at CalFussman.com for more information. Bottom line is this: for decades, I've been informing people through magazine articles and books. When I really think about it, this may be the first time in my life when I'm doing work that helps people build in a huge way. So thank you for any connections you might make, and all the good that may come out of them. Until next week, cheers.